0: picture of our spiritual reality, that we are intimately and inseparably joined to Jesus Christ, and it is from him that we draw our life. And then he uses that word like. He says, in a death like his, and in a resurrection like his. Like meaning similar to, but not identical with Christ. Everything that happened to him was unique because he is the eternal son of God. Our death and resurrection are like his, but they are not identical. We will never know the suffering that Jesus Christ knew. He has saved us from that. We will never know the agony that he knew. He has saved us from that. We will never know the wrath of the Father like he knew. He has saved us from that. So ours is like his, but not not identical to his. But it's important to know that because of our union with him, all the consequences and all the effects of his actual literal death become ours. They are passed on to us. So we go back for a moment to when we were still in Adam for the parallel. We were not literally in Adam when when he sinned. But spiritually, we were in Adam when he sinned. So the consequences of Adam's sin became ours. In the same way, we were spiritually in Christ when he died and when he was resurrected, and thus the consequences of his death and resurrection become ours. That is why Paul uses the term, like his. The next expression we're going to look at is that we shall certainly be. Uh, That shall there is confuses some people, leads them to believe, has led some to think that it refers to our future, our literal future bodily resurrection, but that negates Paul's argument here, because what he's concerned with at the moment is to show us that we can never continue in sin that grace may abound in this life and in this world. He's concerned about the life we as believers live in this world right here and right now, Not with our future glorification. That is why he used that phrase at the end of verse 4, that we might walk in newness of life. So where are we supposed to do that walking? Right here and right now. Okay? In this present life. So a man who dies with Christ shall shall then rise to walk in newness of life. It is continuous action. There is no such thing as being part of the death only. We are also... Baptized into his resurrection. Uh, Because we are in Christ, we take part in all that he has done. We die to sin and we rise to walk in newness of life. So to what is Paul referring to when he says newness of life? He says we have been raised with Christ into a new life. We are no longer in the old life under the dominion and the rule of sin as we've talked about at infinium, uh, we have been taken right out of it. We died to it, and we have risen out of it. We are in this new life, in this world, right here and right now. Our relationship to sin has been entirely changed, just as Christ's relationship to it was entirely changed when he rose again from the dead. So we walk in newness of life in a resurrection like his and anxiously await the day when that newness will be fulfilled completely in our glorification, even as Christ is glorified. Paul describes this in Philippians 3.20. He says, We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So we crucified with him, died with him, buried with him, raised with him, And finally, we will be glorified with Him. All as a direct result of our position and our union with Him. All this is a continuation of Paul's encouragement that he began in the last chapter that our hope and assurance is certain. So this is just continuing. He says this is his whole point. Rest assured, your hope and your assurance of salvation are certain. And he just keeps. Adding on reasons why that is true, okay? Not because of us, but because of what we are now in Christ. Second Timothy 2, 11 and 12, he says the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we also, we will also reign with him. So if we are in Christ, all that follows is absolutely certain. Those who have died with him will endure, right? Because our endurance comes from being in him. Though we are still in the flesh, still persecuted, still tried, still tempted, and constantly showing our weakness and failure, Paul says, all is well. Why? Why? Take Timothy 2.19, he says, But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The Lord knows those that are his. Now, us being Calvinists, we know why he knows those that are his, right? It's pretty simple. He chose us. Our position is guaranteed. Nothing can overthrow it. No matter what comes, we will reign with him and be in glory with him. This is one of the absolute certainties of the Christian faith. and We need to get with the program and start living and believing accordingly. We keep on repeating this same thing over and over simply because Paul kept on saying the same thing over and over. You'd think that it was important, right? As he, It's just a constant. He just says the same thing again and again and again. Probably because our human minds can't grasp it. The whole point, says Paul, is that we are now under the all-powerful reign of grace. So powerful that sin has been defeated. Death and the devil and hell have all been defeated. Christ is victorious and we are victorious with him and in him. The book of Hebrews says that right now we don't see all things put under subjection to him, but we see who? Jesus. That's all that matters. Just look at him. Keep looking at him. It's because you are in him, you are already delivered spiritually, and you will soon be delivered entirely. That's the argument. The argument made by Paul that because of this there can be nothing more monstrous and ridiculous than to suggest that we continue in sin that grace may abound. Everything that has happened to us in Jesus Christ was designed to take us out of that realm of sin and to put us into this new realm of grace. We died with him. For what purpose? If it was so that we could continue in sin then he could have just left us where we were. We were doing a pretty stellar job at at sinning all on our own, were we not? No, it was in order that we might rise with Christ to walk in this newness of life. In Christ we have finished with sin once and forever, just as he has finished with sin once and forever. That is the great statement made in verse 5. He then goes on to work the first half of it out for us in verse 6. He says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self was crucified with him. And if you remember, it's the Aorist tense. means something that happened in the past. Our old self was crucified. It's done. It's complete. We are not gradually being crucified, as some say. It's done. Uh, We have already been crucified. Our old self already has been crucified. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So we know this. We have to know this. It is essential to our Christian faith. What is it that we know? That our old self was crucified with him. Which brings us to an important term, and that being our old self, or our old man, as the King James puts it. This is a huge concern to those that are concerned about sanctification. Our old self are those who spend their lives, spend their entire lives trying to kill their old self, trying to kill their old man. And it has led to such things as hermetism. I don't know what hermetism is. People who live in the caves and live on top of the mountains and uh, in the monasteries and they spend their lives in self-flagellation and self-mutilation, all in an attempt To get rid of their old self, their old man. So what is the old self that was crucified? Again, we go back to the commentaries and you get a whole lot of different answers to this. Well, number one, it is not the carnal nature, nor does it mean our mortality, or our morality prior to our regeneration. Nor does it mean the flesh with all of its affections and lust does not even mean the former self. What does it mean? Again, we have to look at the entire passage going back to chapter 5 and verse 12. The old self, the old man, is the man that I used to be when I was in Adam. I am now a man in Christ. It is the man I once was, but which I no longer am. The old self that was in Adam is the one that was crucified with Christ. I have ceased to be the man that I was in Adam. So as Christians, we are no longer in Adam; we are in Christ. The old man that we can look back on is our old humanity. Get this: it is not our carnal, sinful nature that, unfortunately, but by God's good and perfect plan, is still there. Anybody argue that your carnal Carnal sinful nature is still there, okay? Still there, but the old man has been crucified. He was crucified, aorist tense. Not a process, it has already happened. Christ died once and forever. Our old man died with him once and forever. So now, how do we reconcile this fact that our old self has already been crucified by with statements made by Paul elsewhere. If you take, for example, Ephesians 4:22 20 through, through 24, he says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In Colossians three nine and ten. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Galatians five twenty four he says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So is this something that has already been done for us? Or is it something that I am supposed to do? Or even is it something that I already did on my own? That's what we get from all of those different statements by Paul. How do we reconcile all of these statements? The only way is to understand and to say that the old self that was crucified is the man that I was in Adam. My old humanity That man that was born in sin and shaped in iniquity, that sinned with Adam and reaped the consequences of that sin, that man that was under the wrath and the condemnation of God, that man is dead. He was crucified with Christ. There is therefore now no no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because I am no longer that man. I am a new man in Christ. So we can then realize that when Paul tells us to put off the old man, what he means is is that we must put off the characteristics of the life of that old man. We can't put off something that has already been crucified. We can't put off something that's already dead. So what Paul is really saying is, in effect, do not go on living as if you were still that old man. Don't keep living like that old man lived. That man is dead. Do not go on living as if he was still there. Put that off. Be what you are. You are a new man. Live like it. Paul states quite clearly that it is our responsibility to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. Those have not been crucified for us. They are still there. Wise wives are still there for me. I don't know about the rest of you. Okay, But the message here is that those are of little or no consequence to us now. The thing that we need to hold on to, the thing that is a continuation of Paul's encouragement to us of the surety and certainty of our salvation is that the man that I once was in Adam has died once and forever. Our failure to realize this oftentimes... Uh, allows the devil to fool us and to delude us. What we are called upon to do is to cease to live as if we were still in Adam. The only way to stop living as if he is still there is to accept the certain fact that he is not there. Our whole trouble is that we do not realize what we are. We do not realize the position that we have been placed into. If you are a Christian, The man that you were in Adam no longer exists. He has no reality at all. You are in Christ now. If we saw this as we should, we would really begin to live as Christians ought to live. We'd hold our heads up and we would be able to defy sin. We would be able to resist the devil and send him fleeing. We would rejoice in Christ as we ought to rejoice in Christ. Paul gave us our example way back in chapter 4 of the faith that we have been given, like that of Abraham. Abraham believed God and through faith accomplished that which was impossible even in his own mind. 99-year-old man becoming the father of many nations. How preposterous is that? But against hope, he believed in hope that it would happen. That's a direct quote. Against hope, he believed in hope that it would happen. And so giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that what God had promised, he was able to perform. That is where we stand as well. Like Abraham, we see the difficulties. But we are not to focus on the difficulties, but on God who has promised us that all that belongs to Christ is going to be our own. Just as Abraham believed and accepted the promise from the mouth of God, we need to believe and accept the promise from his word that has been given to us. To believe by faith what God tells us that he has done. We have been crucified with Christ. We have died with Christ. We've been buried with Christ. We've been raised to walk in newness of life in Christ. God has told us that he placed us in Christ. Baptized into him by the Holy Spirit, promised that nothing can ever take us out of Christ. And because of all this, our future, our eternal future, our final glorification, is guaranteed and certain and sure. Paul will go on to say that whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. That's our promise. And it's true. So now we can proceed to work out Paul's objective in all of this. This whole time he is giving his answer to that false objection that he mentioned in the first verse. He's still showing us how nonsensical the suggestion is that we should continue in sin, that grace may abound. The whole object of all that Christ has done in his grace is to deliver us finally and completely out of sin and out of death and to bring us into this new life which is the life of God. So after his statement in verse 6 that our old self has been crucified with Christ, Paul gives us two deductions or two objectives that this crucifixion accomplishes. First, is that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. And second, that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. These are the two things that inevitably follow our being crucified with Christ. That the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Again, as we already stated, the body of sin is not, to re- not referring to our old self or our old man. He's already dead, already crucified with Christ. What he is referring to is the old nature. Again, the old man and the old nature are two separate things. So what Paul is intending to do here is to show that under our new reign and rule of grace, our total connection to sin is to be banished altogether. We are to be delivered entirely from sin, all of it. That word body really does mean body. All the way through the entire section of chapters 6, 7, and 8, and all the way into chapter 12, Paul has a lot to say about the body, the literal body. That's what he's talking about, our physical body, which sin has taken possession of. The body of sin means, uh, means sin as it dwells in us body of sin is sin as it dwells in us in our present bodily condition, not the body in and of itself but as the vessel in which sin and death still reign in us. So here's the distinction between myself as a person and my body. The meaning of the body of sin is that sin still reigns and rules not over me, who often tends to do so over my body. What does that even mean? It means that when man sinned, when Adam sinned, sin gained complete mastery over him. Again, as we saw in chapter 5, mastery over the whole of man, body, mind, and spirit. But in, in, in particular, it had this this effect that is true still of every man who is not a Christian. This is true of every man who is still in Adam, that his life is dominated by the body, these members that are in the body. These are what control him when, in fact, he should be in control of them. That is, This is what man in sin looks like. Sin is in control. He is under the dominion of sin, the rule and the reign of sin. Man in sin is upside down, if you will material or the animal part of him is controlling him his body is supreme ruler and he is controlled by it paul puts it to the ephesians as obeying the lusts of the flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind that's the kind of life that is lived by all who are not christian all who are in sin all who are in adam his letter to the Philippian church, Paul describes these lost men, lost men as such in uh, chapter 3, verse 19. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. King James says their appetites. Probably a little more fitting. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And we can take that. Their God is their appetites and their glory and in their shame, and we can apply that to rainbow flag stuff and all of that. Yeah, that's part of it. But what he's referring to is that last little bit there. He says their mind is set on what? Earthly things. It's not the total de- degenerates. You don't have to, you know, that's, that's a little on down the road. But these lost people, are their mind is set on earthly things. That's why they're lost. But in Christ... That is no longer the case. What is the position of the Christian? The position is, I myself am already in Christ, seated in the heavenly places with him. That's what I'm told about myself. I died with him. I was buried with him. I have risen with him. I have ascended with him. I am seated with him in the heavenly places. The old man is gone. I'm no longer that man. I am a new man in Christ Jesus. That is what is true about me. It is, however, not yet the truth about my mortal body. See the difference? I am already there. My body is not yet. Sin is still in my mortal body. If we say it is not, what does John say in his first epistle? (laughs) We lie and do not practice the truth. If we say it is not still there, we lie and do not practice the truth. Sin is in my body, in its members, having its effects on the, parts of, on the parts of my body. That is, I believe, what Paul is referring to here in the term of the body of sin. Sin remains an influence on the body. I myself am a spiritual being, entirely and forever outside the realm of sin's influence. But it, it has pleased God in his eternal wisdom To leave sin in the members of the body. Now, kind of a parallel if you think if you were here for Cooper Sunday School lessons a while back, God delivered the children of Israel out of Egypt, right? Took them across the Red Sea, through the wilderness, across the Jordan, and gave them the promised land. But He left certain of the nations in that promised land, and his people had to struggle with those nations. See, all of the Old Testament is a picture of the New Testament. The body is not yet delivered from the effects of sin and the fall, but I am delivered. So this is a sidebar and something that you can work out for yourself. But did you ever wonder why God left those certain nations? Ever wonder why God left us in this body of sin? Well, here are my thoughts from my own honest self-examination. Had God chosen to crucify my body of sin along with my old self, I will tell you what I would have eventually come to, the same as the children of Israel would have come to and unfortunately eventually did would have gotten very comfortable and I would have eventually decided that my new position was a result of my own efforts and righteousness and I would have decided that I no longer had a need for God. But with the opposite being true, however, as I have stated before, having come from a wicked background, I have pictures in my mind and inclinations in my heart that I cannot get rid of. The heart and the mind are the members of the body that he's referring to here. Every time one of these pictures or inclinations arises, it is a never-ceasing reminder that apart from the grace of God and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that I am the chief of sinners. My body of sin is not yet delivered. But thanks be to God, I am delivered. I have been delivered. I am dead to sin. That was Paul's original proposition. How shall we who died to sin continue to live in it? Now, I'm going to say something that some disagree with and many misunderstand, so hang on. The body in and of itself is not sinful. The body has various parts, or as Paul refers to them as members. These are our instincts, our leanings, our propensities, our urges, whatever you want want to call them. Uh and there is nothing sinful in that in and of itself. Now, if you will think of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ had a body as we have. He had the same instincts. He had every one of the same instincts that we have. If this were not so, then he would have not been fully man. And we know that he was fully man. Now, here comes the point. We are told that he was tempted in all points just like we are. In other words, the devil tried to tempt him through all of his natural instincts. We too often forget that. He was tempted in all points just like we are tempted, yet without sin. He didn't fall for the temptations. What the devil does is he comes thus, us. He tempts us along the line of our natural instincts, the various drives and urges and appetites of the body. We need to make this distinction. There is nothing wrong in the body itself as such. There is nothing wrong with all of these instincts. Nothing. It is our Creator that put these instincts in us as a vital part of our body. The Wrong comes in when one or several of these natural instincts dominates our whole person instead of being kept in its right position and put to its right use. Jesus Christ was a male human being in every sense of the word. He was tempted in all points just like us, and yet he was without sin. So what is the difference between Christ and his body and every one of us? Well, Simply enough, we are born in sin and shaped in iniquity. Christ was born Holy. Spirit told Mary, the holy thing that is within you. Every one of his instincts and leanings and desires were in their proper proportion and kept in their right places. And so the devil failed miserably whenever he tried to tempt him to sin. Not so with us. We were born upside down, if you will. We were born with the bodily desires dominating and ruling over us. So, we have to contend with all the temptations that the world, the flesh, and the devil constantly throw at us. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life. That's Satan's one game, you know that, right? That's the only game he's got. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. That's the only game he's used that game for 6,000 plus years. It's the only one he's got. They assault us at every turn, it seems like. Christ in the wilderness. Remember after his 40 days, Satan came and tried to tempt him in the wilderness. Christ in the wilderness. You need to get this part. On our behalf. On our behalf. Shrugged off all three of those like dust off the sleeve. On our behalf. What's the point? I am delivered. My earthly body is not yet delivered. I am waiting for the adoption, the redemption of my body. But now in Christ, my person has been fully and completely redeemed. My old self has been crucified with Christ. To what end? The object of salvation is that we be rid of sin and its effects entirely and completely says in verse 6, In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. What a terrible and monstrous idea, says Paul, that we should profane God's whole purpose of bringing our body of sin to nothing and bringing us freedom from the enslavement of sin, that we would take that holy purpose surmise that we should continue in sin that grace may abound. We, how can we, being what we are, having died to sin, continue to live in it? Verse 7, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. This is Paul's way of saying from this point forward we should no longer be, be slaves of sin. He does not say that we should no longer commit acts of sin. You gotta get the difference there. He says that we should no longer be slaves of sin. We used to be slaves of sin. In Adam we were slaves of sin. We did whatever we were told by the members of our body. We had no freedom. Now we know at least or we should know that we were always a slave. Okay, we are either the slave of our old Adamic. Sinful nature, or we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ. One or the other. right? That's the only two options there is. No fence straddlers. The purpose of redemption is to deliver us from the slavery of sin, and place us as bond slaves of Jesus Christ. The Christian is no longer the slave of sin, but unfortunately, he too far off, far too often allows it to rule in his body. That sinful nature is still in us, and too often we allow it to rule and to govern us. Paul says we should not do so. We have no excuse for doing so. We are told again and again in the Scripture that we have no excuse for allowing that to happen. Our old man is dead. Our bondage to sin died with him. He died with Christ, was buried with Christ. We were raised to walk in newness of life. We are now free to choose whom we will serve. The only power that sin has over us now is the power that we give it in allowing it to reign in our mortal bodies. So, now I'm going to close with the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 43. And that being so, that some can say, well, if you'd just read that in the beginning, we wouldn't have have had to listen to all this. Okay? Catechisms and and the confessions are really great things. Number 43. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? And the answer is that by virtue thereof, our old man is crucified, dead, and buried with him. That so, the corrupt inclinations of the flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Sin no longer rules or reigns over us or controls us unless we allow it. We are free indeed Now offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice. Or as Paul will say in chapter 12, our bodies as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving. Because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the plan that you established salvation. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that guides us and leads us. let just pray that, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would fall on each one of us this morning. Help us not to give in to the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life. Help us to stay focused on Christ whom we can see, on Christ who is in us. With us as we continue through the remainder of our service this morning.